And I read an article just a couple of days ago to that effect. And you have, in some ways, people over here would go, well, the, the presence of God is something to be pursued. And people over here would say the presence of God is something to be practiced and you just have to become aware. It's there, but you just have to notice that it's there. And the images, in fact, make quite a significant difference when it comes to the way you think about prayer and responding to God in his, his dwelling, his presence. And that's a little bit come through even in what Terry Virgo was sharing on that video just now. And I think both of those two sides actually have a risk to them. Because I think on this side, the pursuing the presence people, which is great, you want to be actively desiring God's presence. But what can happen is people can function as if God is only with us at particular points in our week. And in some cases, God might only be with us for in a particularly intense 10 minutes in a worship time in our week. If that I mean, I've seen people, you know, I remember reading one sort of quite high-profile ministry saying, the way you should measure the success of a Christian meeting is whether or not God is present. Because if you think that's true, then you're going to go, well, was God present this morning? I don't know. I mean, I sort of, I felt a little bit of the presence of God when Claire was singing, and, but then Andrew got up to start and speak, and God just left, and he wasn't there anymore. And now I'm like, well, was God there? Oh, no. And it can make you feel a little bit like God is only, only there sometimes. That's the risk. No one wants you to do that, but that's the risk. Is God is sometimes here, and it's a little bit mystical as to exactly when and how. So there's a risk of thinking the presence of God is something to try and chase after, and he might be there, and he might not. At the same time, there's a risk on the other side, which is, no, God is there all the time. You just need to notice that. Because the risk is you just become quite apathetic. You become quite, well, God's always there. So I just I go to the toilet, God's there. Come into church, God's there. There's no real difference. There's, I'm not expecting God to be, more, uh, to be more aware of God's presence in any moment over any other. And so then you just think, oh, it's just one of those things. It's like nitrogen. You know, I'm breathing it in, breathing it out it's all the time. It's there. I don't, I don't care. It doesn't do any difference to me. So fine. And then you can end up with actually a, a slight disconnect between your prayer life and the awareness of the dwelling of God among us. And so I think you can, you, there's a risk to both. And in many ways, I think that both groups, if I can draw them that way, would appeal to Psalm 84 in support of their view. So we're going to read it and then try and make some sense of it and then apply it, I hope, into the way we handle this. You, you may not, if that, those two issues, are, that's not an issue for you, you're already there, you go, oh, I know exactly how to steer the middle course between them, wonderful. And this will just serve as a, as a reminder. Um, but I think for some of us, we may know what it's like to live with that question, is God always here or is he specially here sometimes? How does that work? And so for that, we're going to look at Psalm 84. I'm going to read it all beginning at verse 1. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Selah is a Hebrew word that means, well, we don't know what it means, but it kind of means break or pause. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. 
I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of God. It's a song about how beautiful the presence of the Lord is. And it's caught the imagination of uh, Jewish and Christian worshippers for nearly 30 centuries. It's got quite a long history, that song. And some of those lines will be familiar to us because probably some of them are, if we've been around church any length of time, they, they are incorporated in a number of our songs. And it's one of those psalms that people love because we, it resonates with us if we know God because we say, yes, that is what it's like. When we're with you, we love that sense of your presence. And we desire to be in it at all times. But it's a, quest, it's a psalm that raises a, a critical question about the relationship between prayer and God's presence. Because does it mean your presence is wonderful and I wish I could be there? Or does it mean your presence is wonderful and I'm so glad I am here? See, I mean, it, and I don't know how you've read it. I don't know when you, even if you, we sing a song, you know, better is one day in your course than thousands elsewhere. I don't know whether you are singing that thinking, the presence of God is something that I sometimes touch and love when I do, but I'm not necessarily always there. Or whether you sing it meaning, I love that that's always true. I don't know. It, probably the answer is if I got people to raise their hands, some of us would be in this and some of us would be here. It might mean different things, if you like, to different people. And so some people might read the psalm as if to say, for instance, how lovely is your presence. I long to be there. Even the sparrows and the swallows get to be there. Oh Lord, may I join them. I'd love to be a doorkeeper in your house. Or, if you're on this side, it would mean, how lovely is your presence? I love being there. It's such a privilege to be here with the swallows and the sparrows all around. And even they are able to be welcomed into your presence. Thank you, Lord. How I'd love being a gatekeeper in the house of God. Do you see it? You'd read the psalm two quite different ways, couldn't you? Is it something that you have or something that you are yet to have? And the question is, which is right? Well, the answer, I think... I'm, I'm pretty sure it comes in the bit of the psalm that most people don't realize is actually in the Bible at all. We read it, and it might have sounded a little bit funny that we did. I don't actually know if it did appear on the screen uh, or not. But when you read the psalms, I don't know if you noticed that the, the numbers, you know, there's a big 84 at the top. And it'll, it might even in your Bible, and if you have a Bible open, it might have a subtitle or something, a heading. And that's in, put in by the translators to make it easy to find. But underneath that, there will be an introductory sentence. Often. It'll, sometimes it simply says, of David. But in this particular case, it's actually in the Hebrew that was written originally. It's not a new edition in the Bible. It says, at the beginning of verse 1, it says, To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. That's actually in the, in the word that was written down. That's not something that we've put in much later to help you find it. That's actually in the text. And those three statements what, of what this song is really help us understand, is this a song saying, I want to be in the presence of God and I'm not, or I am in the presence of God and I'm glad I am? Okay? Three clues in those words that the song has been written by people that are already in the presence of God, enjoying it, rather than those who want to be. Okay? Firstly, it says, to the choir master. If you read 1 Chronicles, you which I'm sure we all do all the time, which one Chronicles, end of 1 Chronicles, not an easy read. It's a lot of lists. And one of the things that is listed, if you like, is the way in which they're supposed to use the staff, the choirs in the temple. A lot of 1 Chronicles is David saying, I want to get worship teams ready to lead the nation in worship as soon as the temple is built. 
So we're going to get these teams of people and these choirs to lead us in worship, much as we would do here, just with fewer people. And so the fact that it's to the choir master indicates we're talking about a group of people who are worshipping in the temple, because that's where Israelite choirs served. And the, the fact that he's in the temple, the temple is, of course, where God meet, dwells among his people. So that's a clue that this, is song, this song is to be sung in the context of people who are in the presence of God, not people who are hoping to be. Second clue is that line, according to the Gittith, which is another, if you have a footnote in your Bible, it may say something like, this is probably a liturgical and musical term, or something like that. Again, it's telling us this song was written, and the tune, it's probably the name of the tune that they had, this tune is written in order to be used in temple liturgical worship. And then the third clue, which is the big one, is it says, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And again, depending on how you might read your Bible and continually go, I don't know who Korah is. Some of you probably already do know who he is. Many of us going, I don't know who that guy is or who his sons are or why I care. But when you follow it up and again, you go back to 1 Chronicles, you find that the sons of Korah are a group of people who are gatekeepers in the temple. The Korahites were, it's like you, this whole tribe of Jewish people said, you, all these, it's not a whole tribe, but it's like a sort of a family within the tribe of Levi. You guys are all responsible for looking after the gates across the many generations. And it's, it's, yeah, it's nice being in this church because you have a few families of which there are several generations. You have witzes and bowyers going from Tony and Jane to John and Abby down to three boys. And you can sort of see, the, but this would go on and on and on and on and on, right? So then Joe and Sam and Levi's kids would all have their own kids. In fact, he is a Levi. You must have been trying to make this point when you named him that. Thank you so much, guys. But it got, for generation after generation, your job would be to be the gatekeepers in the house of God. You, were, you lived in the temple, you served in the temple, you didn't sleep there, but you would, as in that, you would minister there all the time, and that was your role. So when they say in this psalm, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked, they're not saying, oh, wouldn't it nice to be a, door, to be a doorkeeper in God's house? They're saying, I am a doorkeeper in God's house, and what a joy and treasure that is, because I love the presence of God so much, because I'm here. So in that sense, you, some of you might not have been asking that question, but for me that's very helpful in just helping us read the psalm again and saying, okay, so this psalm is not written by people who are saying, I would love to be in the presence of God, but I'm not. It's written by people who are saying, I serve and live every day in the presence of God, and what a joy and a privilege it is to dwell there. That's what the psalm is trying to do. Now in those days, the place where God's presence lived in power like that was the Jerusalem temple. That was a literal building where heaven met earth, if you like, where the dwelling place of God came and became among people. And that was where the ark of God was. And people from all over the world sometimes would come and bring tribute or would worship God in the temple because that's where he lives. But when Jesus died on the cross, the amazing thing, one of the many amazing things that happened was that the temple veil, the curtain that separated where God lived from everything else, was ripped in half. And in Jesus' day, it was a much bigger deal than it was in these days here, because in Jesus' day, it was 60 foot high. It was three inches thick. And it was just torn in two when Jesus died and shouted out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. (laughs) Massive rip. And suddenly, the presence of God symbolically is available to the world. And the world, of course, could, if they wanted to, walk into the temple and have the presence of God directly available to them. So if we're going to apply this psalm, how lovely is your dwelling place, we need to be aware of the fact that although in the day the psalm was written, the dwelling place of God was the specific place in a specific city in Israel, 
now the dwelling place of God, according to all of the early Christians who wrote about this, has come out from behind the curtain and is now indwelling his people, the church. So a few examples. You may have some of these on the page. I don't know. At Pentecost, we read that the presence of God descended on the church and filled the entire house where they were sitting. That is, in the, when the temple was built and dedicated, the presence of God fills the entire house. And then, when the church is dedicated, the presence of God fills the entire house. That's how Luke describes it. And from that point on, the apostles start saying things like, Don't you know that you are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you? Don't you know that? He says to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 3.16. And there we go. This is the second one. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6.90. Don't you know your body is a temple? of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You have 1 Peter 2 verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And all of those passages and others like them are trying to tell the church the temple is no longer simply a piece of space in Jerusalem. It's you. The church is where God lives now. So you've got to realize when we go back and read Psalm 84 and any number of other things, that we have to apply what it says about the presence of God, not to a particular piece of real estate, but to ourselves, which I'm sure for many is familiar. But it does mean that when we read the psalm, it makes the whole thing seem fresh and powerful to us in a way that it might not have if we didn't realize that. Because his dwelling place, in which, how lovely is your dwelling place? It's like, right here. How lovely is your dwelling place? Better is one day in your courts than a thousands elsewhere. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. And what the psalmist is saying is, what a joy to be here. And what we get to read as we read the psalmist, what a joy to be here. This is the place God lives. This is where you are. I mean, there aren't that many swallows and sparrows in this building. But that's the expectation of the psalmist. Like these people and these creatures are with us, worshiping together in the place where God himself lives. And incidentally, that's not only true when we gather. That's true when you're walking on the downs and when you're going into work as well. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. That is a, this is a song for the church to sing and declare and celebrate the reality of God's presence among us whenever we are gathered and actually even when we're not. So God is here wherever we are. That could sound like what I'm saying is from the beginning, you have the people who are pursuing the presence of God and the people who say, oh, God's here all the time, makes no difference. And it could sound like I'm siding with this, guy, this side. But actually, I think the risk of this side is still a risk for us, that we can just get flippant about, well, God's present, so I don't really need to pray or worship or do anything in light of that. I just, he's always there. It's just one of those things. Because it could sound like I don't have to do anything to experience his presence if he's always there. Is that true? I don't think that's true at all. That's not how the psalmist responds. The psalmist himself is living, worshipping in the presence of God, and yet he does not take that for granted and go, oh, it's just one of those things. He spends his, if he's using his liturgy here to worship God and help the people of God pray to God such that they would experience and recognize the drama and glory of living in God's presence all the time. And the reason is because there is a huge difference between being present and being experienced as present. And I trust that that's obvious to some of us, but if it isn't, I want to illustrate it a few different ways. How many of you know who, do you know Belinda Marsh? Has she been over here to speak before? Graham's wife, Belinda? Okay, a lot of us do. The other day, I'm upstairs in my office at the King Center. I work in the next door, pretty much next door office to Jez. And 
I'm pretty confident I'm the only person in the building, or at least in the upstairs section of the building, um, and certainly nobody else is making any noise, and I just decided I'm going to go make myself a coffee. And so walk along the, co- walk along the corridor quite sort of, I don't know, not unusually loudly, but clearly loudly enough for the miscreant who's in the kitchen to realise that I'm there and that maybe hiding behind the door would be a fun thing to do. And so I approach the kitchen, open the door, and Belinda, who is small enough to fit in the gap in our staff kitchen between the coffee maker and the door, leaps out and frightens the living devils out of me, like, Wah! I mean, I was like screaming like a girl, running down the corridor, like really, really frightened. And of course, people, I mean, I, I will get her one day and my, my vengeance will be slow, but it will be decisive when it comes. But obviously, in a moment like that, all that's happening, and you're laughing because you're just thinking, that's something I would love to have been able to do, and I'd like to have seen it. But, I, you know, but there's a difference, isn't there, between presence and recognition of presence. Someone can be there and you don't know they are. And then when you suddenly discover they are, it's a very different sort of scenario. Now, that's a, that's a bad example for God because God isn't hiding to go boo, but it's an obvious example that knowing somebody's there really helps you. But there are more relevant analogies, I think. So my son, Zeke, he's nine years old now. Imagine four contexts in which he and I, in which I am present with him on a scale, if you like. So Context one, normal family life, I am in the house, he is also in the house, and he is buzzing around being a nine-year-old boy talking about football. And he's just coming into the room, like this. he's in his own little world, he buzzed out the room, I'm in the kitchen, he was there too, he didn't really sense I was there, but I was. And he's just not really thinking about it at all, he goes off and does something else. That's context one. Context two, he and I are playing football together in the garden. Context three, he and I are sitting on the sofa watching Match of the Day together. Context four, while in the middle of doing that, he looks at me, throws his arms around me and goes, I love you, Dad, which he sometimes does, and it's beautiful. In those four contexts, I'm equally, in a sense, equally present in all four of them. But I think we would probably all say that there is an experience of the presence of his father that comes to him in the fourth one that is nothing like what comes to him in the first one. And actually there are moments of increased awareness and experiential benefit of the presence of his father that he will get depending on how aware he is and actually even how much he has slowed his life down to take, away, to take advantage of the fact that I am there. And many times our experience with God is the same. If you may be one of those people who is continually aware that God is with you at all times and praying and continually thanking God for it. My guess is that most of us, and I'm certainly like this, are at certain times in our week or our year much more aware that God, God's dwelling place is with us than we are at other times because we're simply doing something else and we haven't slowed down to realize it. And so I think you could be, God could be equally present in a number of different contexts, but your awareness of and your benefit from, your intimacy with his presence could vary dramatically. Another illustration. On your walk here, did anybody walk here today while there was still dew on the ground? Okay, so most of us, got, the day, the, it cleared pretty quick this morning, right? So it's pretty cloudy, about eight. So it depends when you were up, right? But you might have got up and got out in the garden first thing or something, and you may have seen dew on the ground. By the time most of us walked to church, the dew had gone because the sun. So there is a lot of water vapor in this in this room now. There'd be a lot of water vapor outside, and what happens, of course, is it's there all the time. You can't see it. You don't notice it. You don't think about it. You just breathe it in, breathe it out, walk through it, and then there comes a moment at somewhere about two, three, four in the morning this time of year, where things cool to such an extent that the water becomes tangible, becomes visible. It actually condenses onto the grass or the wall or whatever it is. And suddenly we become aware that there is a tangible representation of this thing that was always there, but we didn't notice it was. 
And when I was a, a young Christian, I heard a preacher use that to illustrate the relationship between prayer and the presence of God. So that actually sometimes worshipping, praising, praying to God is a means of cooling ourselves to a level, cooling the atmosphere really, to the extent that we become aware of that which is already there. Of just allowing the, the temperature to kind of lower so that instead of just being in the steam in the air and we don't notice, we're actually physically able to see, to feel, to access, to experience that which has already been there. And so in that sense, the presence of God is like, the dew is the presence of God's presence always there, and yet there are times when things are sufficiently cool or slow where we really benefit from it and encounter him in a way that we otherwise wouldn't. One more illustration. It just shows how stupid I am. I, was, um, I had a problem with a car a couple of years ago, and I ring up one of those, sort of go online, look up one of those mechanic pages, you know, who's the nearest mechanic to me, somebody, is there someone, you put in your postcode, and then it says you should call this guy. So I needed something fixed quickly, so I rang the number, and this guy said, oh, it's Mike, yeah, okay, well, I'll come over, and yeah, all right, you can do it. Where do you live? And I said, 23 Ringwood Road, and he said, oh, I, I live in 17 Ringwood Road. I'm like, are you, what? And then I'll go out, of course, eventually go outside and see him, and he's like, that's the guy who lives three doors down. I've seen him in the street, I knew his name was Mike, I didn't know he was a mechanic, and I certainly didn't know that he could come and fix my car, but he's right next door, and I didn't know he was. And it was only when I called upon him to be who he claimed to be that he was able to help me with my car. He'd, he'd been present the whole time. I could probably have shouted from my garden and he'd have heard me in his garden. But I didn't know that, he, I didn't, if you like, trust him to be who he said he was. I hadn't called upon the name of Mike the mechanic at this point. And so, but actually there's a moment sometimes when you do. And you say, I'm going to require you, trust you to be who you claim. And at that point you're able to come around and help me with this thing I have. In the old days, you used to do that with the yellow pages, you know? You just, that's what you do. You don't even, don't know the person at all. There's no Google. So you'd open the yellow pages, and the mechanic, and then you ring up, and this voice was, hello, it's Mike. And you say, Mike, Mike, the, are you Mike the mechanic? Yes, I am. And so, I need you. Oh, I need you. And then he'd come around and he'd help you fix your car. And of course, in these, this, we do exactly the same thing. The psalmist is doing the same thing here. Going, you could turn to the white pages. You rummage through the white pages and you find this claim. You know, we can live, if you like, a few doors down from somebody who it turns out is very able to be our help in time of need. And we don't know that he is. But you turn to the white pages and you find the sons of Korah saying, But the Lord of hosts, it's a sun and a shield. Look upon the face of your anointed. And we are, you and I claim that. And we go to Psalm 84 and we go, Oh Lord, oh, are you the Lord of hosts, our sun and our shield? And he says, Yes, I am. And we go, I need you. Oh, I need. That's how we pray. That's, prayer is effectively often calling upon the Lord to be who he claims he is, to come to us in our time of need and to help us and make us aware of and benefit from his presence, which is always on hand, but we often don't realize that he is. That's why the psalmist calls him a very present help in time of need. And so in some senses, what we do as we pray is we're simply releasing God to be who he already is. You could look at it, if you like, as turning to your father and hugging him and saying, I love you, Dad. You could look at it, if you want, at saying boo in the kitchen, or I'm not sure that quite works. You could look at it, if you wanted, at calling on the mechanic just down the road to come and help you. You could look at it, if you want, as cooling yourself like the dew point to allow God to be tangible and experienced as he is. But whatever you are doing, our prayer life is in many ways a way of adjusting ourselves and calling upon God to be who he said he is 
so that his presence, which is always there, can profit us, benefit us, and be experienced by us and draw us closer into relationship with him. So just before we conclude, I just want to suggest a couple of things that might help practically in doing that in ordinary life. Right? The first thing is just a piece of practical wisdom that really helped me when I heard it. The second is a more biblical, I suppose, example of that happening. The practical wisdom, one of those one-liners you sometimes hear that just sticks to you and sticks to the fridge in your mind, which it does for me. I just heard somebody use, I don't know who said it, actually. A lot of people credit it to different people. But the practical wisdom was this. Never resist the smallest impulse to pray. Just never resist it. As a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and he is continually nudging you to do things. And sometimes you, you listen to him, and sometimes you don't. And sometimes you go, in all honesty, I'm too busy, Holy Spirit. I'm not. Even if that's not the framework you would use, that's practically what happens. And the wisdom was simply, when that happens, do not resist the impulse. And I, I try to do this. I often, I'm, I'm sure I don't always get it right, but I'm very often, even because that line comes in and hits me in my life, I was doing it the other day, I'm just walking along, just, and then suddenly out of nowhere, you should pray. And that thought drops into my mind, and even if only for an instant, even if only for three or four seconds, Father, thank you for your goodness. Oh, okay, now on with the day. But never resist the smallest impulse to pray, because as a Christian, as someone in whom the Spirit lives, you will regularly hear the Spirit going, why don't you do this? And when he says, why don't you pray? Just, don't, just try and, initially, it'll feel alien, but actually it's a good, and you'll find the habit becomes easier and easier. And I have. It now becomes much more instinctive than it first did. But never turn down that suggestion, even for a brief second. That's the practical thing. The more biblical example is if you were to then say to me, well, what should I pray in order to experience the presence of God? I would say, come to Psalm 84. Let's just start there, right? And come back to these words. And you may find it helpful to pray them or even memorize them. Say, okay, that's fine. I never resist the impulse to pray. What am I going to pray? And you could say lots of things. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray help or whatever it was you want to pray. But you may find Psalm 84 a helpful way of praying to Build your awareness of the presence of God. You remember his presence. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. You rejoice in his presence. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to you, the living God. You reflect on God's presence. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. He never withholds a good thing. And you think, I'm reading these things thinking, yes, if I walk uprightly, he never but withholds a good thing. He's a God of favor and goodness. And I begin to remind myself of these truths. You can then make requests in God's presence. Oh, Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Look on the face of your anointed, oh, God of Jacob. And you may find Psalm 84 is a helpful tool to reflect and rejoice in the presence of God. The presence of God, you see, is not the result of prayer. In many ways... I mean, God's present whether you're praying or not. In many ways, prayer is the result of the presence of God. It is the fact that God has made himself present and accessible to me that means I'm able to pray to him and know that he'll hear me. So we don't start from prayer and then fight our way into the presence of God. In many ways, we start in the presence of God, and from there we begin to fight in prayer. Instinctively, most of us don't do that. I've, I've noticed this a long time, but I think another writer pointed it out. He said, we pray the Lord's Prayer backwards. That actually what most people do, I, I was in a flight on the way back from, I was on my way into New Zealand and with Rachel. And um, we were just flying in and there's a wind tunnel created by the mountains and a big lake and the town we're going into. 
and the plane is just dropping sort of, you know, have you ever had that on a flight where the plane's dropping 20 or 30 feet at a time and everyone's screaming? Is that one of those flights? It's like a movie scene. And it's really interesting how when that happens, people start praying. They think they're going to die, right? So people start shouting, help! You might hear somebody a bit more Italian shouts, Mother of God, forgive me! Or words to that effect. And it's all very awkward at the baggage collection counter because these bags are going around and you're going, all right, all right. It's just that we've been kind of repenting and shouting things and then suddenly everything's normal and it feels very weird. But actually what it strikes, when you have that experience, and you may have, it's interesting how intuitively we pray the Lord's Prayer backwards. What we do is we start by going, deliver us from evil! And we might, if we're very spiritual, get to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who... But that's not how Jesus tells us to pray. Jesus tells us, you know, that's what we want to do. We help. Sorry. In fact, some of, us, some of you have been taught to pray that way. Oh, you always you know, say, ask for God to do this. and you know, teasp- Thank you, sorry, please, teaspoon, that, that sort of thing. That's actually not what God says. Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father in heaven... Hallowed be on. And it's, basically, it's only the end of the prayer when you start saying, oh, by the way, deliver me from evil. I think there's wisdom. Well, there is wisdom there. Jesus said it. There is wisdom there in knowing you begin with the revelation and recognition of God's fatherly goodness and presence and heavenly dwelling and power. And as you go on and you begin to ask for his kingdom and his will to be done, you may then start asking for things you need, like daily bread or forgiveness or even rescue from the evil one. And as you do, you find that trajectory you're on goes from recognition of your standing, your identity, your dwelling with God and into the things you need, not the other way around. He's here. We are his temple. So let's live daily in the experience of his presence. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord. How lovely it is to be those who get to dwell in the presence of the Most High God. Lord, we would rather be, and some of us are, gatekeepers in the house of God. We would rather be people who mill around on the hedges in the house of God than dwell in any other kind of place on earth because your presence brings us so much that we could not get anywhere else. Your goodness, Lord, you are a God of favor, a God of honor, a God of delight, a God of joy, a God who satisfies our souls and withholds no good thing from those who walk with him. Lord, we are so grateful. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere, and one day we're going to live thousands of days in your courts. So, Lord, how blessed we are how favoured we are, and we thank you for your presence, and we pray that you would help us even this week to practice, to live in the light of and goodness of the presence of the Most High God. We love you. Amen. Amen.